We look into his word. Why don't we turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Oh man, that was some good singing. Thank you. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going into verses 10 to 14. And we are slowly, slowly starting to finish. The title of this sermon is called Separation from the World. Separation from the World. Let's pray. Father, we come to this text and we are amazed what your son did for us. Going outside, bearing the reproach for us. Even as we celebrate and as we remember uh, remember what your son did for us and what you've done for us by giving us your son. We pray that we would stop and chew on these truths. Father, feed our souls by your word, by your spirit, through your son. We need to be reminded this morning. We pray, Father, that these truths would convict and teach, edify, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Separation from the world. We were in a home fellowship group, and Manny was teaching in Romans chapter 12. One little verse, and it took up all the time. Um, It was so edifying. The verse was Romans chapter 12, verse 14. And the verse says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Because in our natural uh, state of sinfulness, we would want to curse if someone persecutes us. And we started to share when we all, we started to share some stories. And I, when we got saved, and there had to be a break. There's this one time, moment in time when you know that there must be this break. This break from the pervasive attitude of Christlessness in the world. A break from the world system. A break from the attitude of thinking the way the world does. A break from its values, its treasures. A break from its morals. A break from what it deems popular. Uh, a few of us were a few of us were fighting back tears as we remembered we had to separate ourselves for the glory of Christ and what that meant there was a line that had to be drawn and every believer knows this there is this line that has to be drawn It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's really this pervasive attitude of not acknowledging Christ as Lord. Being friends with the world, brothers and sisters, as you have known, being friends with the world ruins your witness and it ruins your walk with Christ. Christ calls you to separate yourself for his glory And he gives us power and resources and motivation right in the text as we'll, we shall see. Look at Hebrews 13, verses 10 to 14. This is, this is so edifying to my soul as I studied it this week. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here Here, brothers and sisters, listen to this. Here, we do not have a lasting city. But we are seeking the city which is to come. Amen. Amen. 
God gave this passage so you would consciously separate yourself from the world system unto holiness in Christ. That you would be purposeful, intentional in separating yourself for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about what separation is and what it isn't later on. But just hold your horses till we get there. There are four lessons on separation given to you this morning. Four lessons. First, there's Israel's example of separation. That's in verses 10 through 11. In verse 10, he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And just a little bit of background. This is probably one of the most difficult texts in all of Hebrews to kind of understand and to interpret. There's different views on how how to interpret. Some people, some Christians believe it's a literal altar where Christians are to worship at an altar. That's why some of the languages are like when we, they have a, sometimes f- uh, different churches may have an altar call. So you need to worship at an altar. Um, and the right to eat would be the Lord's Supper. But there's problems with that because who are the people who have no right to eat? And verse 11, look at verse 11. It says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place. That's certainly not Christian sacrifice. Some people think it's a heavenly altar seen in Revelation chapter 6. But the problems are the same. Some people see as a figure of speech as Christ is the altar of whom must eat and drink. But then again, who has no right to eat? And why are there sacrificial animals in verse 11? I think the best interpretation of this that I've seen is that these are, the writer of Hebrews is writing to fellow Jews. And what he's saying as the writer of Hebrews, he's saying we, we Jews have an altar. Priests serve in the tabernacle or the temple. And what he's saying in this text in verse 11, uh, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Normally the priests, when they sacrifice, they do have a right to eat. They have the right to eat the leftovers of the sacrifices. That was the priest's portion, except on one day. And that one day is the day of atonement, where the priests had no right to eat. In fact, symbolically, what God would tell them to do on that day, they were not permitted to eat it. They were actually told that they are to take the bodies of the sacrificed animals. This day of atonement, this one high holy day where the priests would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And they would take the sacrifices outside of the camp, outside of the city, and burn it completely as unto the Lord. Now, here's the comparison given. Just as the priest would symbolically have no part of the sins of the people, so should you, believer, not be a part of the world and its camp and its system and its thinking and its values and its lifestyles and its worldviews. You are to be really a different culture, a different peculiar kind of people. We are to be actually sore thumbs in this society. Sticking out. Do you know what I mean? So what this text is saying is as the high priests were separate from the world on the day of atonement. They were separate from the world. On the day of atonement, you should be separate from the world in all of life. The whole point really is Israel's example of separation from the world and its sin is indeed powerful, but not nearly as clear as Jesus is. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, just as the high priests separated themselves as unto the Lord to burn the sacrifices outside, it was a symbolism of them not participating in the sin of its people. Now Christ, he takes that example and there, in, in this next text, in verse 12, you'll see Jesus' motivation for separation. You also see his heart. Here is yet another example of separation from the world. And, and to look at verse 12, there's some different um, um, prepositional phrases, and sometimes we would get bogged down, but really the heart of the sentence is, Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Now, the main sentence 
is, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. He says, therefore, because it hearkens back to the example of the high priest taking the sin offering to be burned outside the camp. He says, Jesus also, because it's in like, like manner, in, in comparison. And he tells you and he reminds you that Jesus suffered to remind you of the offense, to remind you of the pain he endured, so that you would not quickly go over the fact, even as we celebrate communion right now, so that you would not quickly go over the fact that he willingly took on the forsaking of the Father and all of the physical torment and torture a man can devise. On top of that was the offense. He says outside the gate, he's referring to the city and walls of Jerusalem. On his way to Golgotha, Jesus was walked outside to be crucified. He was not crucified in the city. He was crucified outside. But here's the heart. Here's the heart of his, why Jesus allowed this to happen and why he voluntarily separated himself. He says that he might, look at, look at the text, Sanctify the people through his own blood. Now the writer of Hebrews talks about the very motive of the willing sacrifice of Christ himself. Unlike the other unwitting sacrifices of animals, the, this sacrifice, he knew exactly what he was doing by offering himself and knew exactly what he would accomplish. He might sanctify the people, what really means that it's not that the, there was a possibility it wouldn't happen, but the word might here is the use of the word might helps us to understand that this is a possibility of future occurrence without fail. That God, Christ himself, died to set us apart. He uses this word sanctify, which we know means to set apart, to make holy, to dedicate, to honor as holy. That root for sanctify is the same root from which we get the word saint. Means the set apart one. So in essence, Christ's motive in going to the cross, God the Father sending Christ to the cross, and the Spirit's empowering to accomplish the work of the cross, was to set apart his people unto him and apart from the world. We are to be a new people. This starts individually and then we act corporately as a body. But one of the prepositional phrases there, one of the phrases that we have to take a look at is it says, through his own blood. Let's, let's sit here for a little bit. That the Son of God has spilt his blood for you. He says his own blood. Christ didn't act as priest and slay something else. He allowed himself to be slain. And this is the gospel, the story that has always been the same since the beginning. That God created us to glorify him, not because he needed it, but because he is worthy of it. Mankind has rejected him in sin, and we have all, since the garden, have displayed our love for sin rather than God. We do not love God with all our hearts. We do not love God with all our minds, our souls, and our strength. Folks today don't even acknowledge his existence. And yet God, God sent his son to put on flesh so that he can sanctify, he can set apart, he could separate a people through his own blood. And the Bible says if you truly trust solely in the work and person of Christ and repent or turn away from sin in this world, you will be saved. So as we think about this, this is one of many facets of Christ's sacrifice. That we remember that when we take communion, the Lord's table the Lord's table, he has set us apart to himself by his blood. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this. 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Brothers and sisters, don't forget your pedigree now. As a believer in Christ, you are sons and daughters of the Most High. We don't believe in the priesthood that says that something must be sacrificed uh, right now, currently. We believe in the priesthood of the saints, that we are all priests in a sense. We get to serve this God. I look out and I look at you and we ought to see this is amazing. We see royalty. Royalty. Because of what he's done. He says, people for God's own possession. His people, that's what he says. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You weren't called Brothers and sisters, if you claim the name of Christ, you were not called to sit on the bleachers. You were called to get in the game. You were called to proclaim his excellencies. That is his beauty, his, perf- his attributes in its perfection, his beauty, his forgiveness, his kindness, his wrath, his glory. You were called to proclaim that in your life in your words, individually, as a church. For you were once not a people. Do you know that? This is true. We were not once not a people. But now you are a people of God. What does that mean? He says, if God did not work to separate you, we would not know each other. And we have to sit and think and dwell about this. My relationships with you in the church and my Christian relationships with other brothers and sisters in other churches are so precious to me, are so precious to him. But it is true. If Christ did not know us first, we would not know each other. Just think about that. I just think about the gaping hole in my life that would leave. All of the trials and all of the joys we have shared together. All of the times worshiping our Lord and the sweet fellowship that we have. He says he has made us a people. Isn't that wonderful? Now, he says, you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's these two pictures of separation, and uh, we have to get that background. Just that, and and le- in summation, let me just recap. Just as the high priest separated themselves from the sins of the people, so should you. Just as the Lord separated himself and was crucified outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem as the mocked and as they mocked and jeered his execution, so are you to be separate from the sins of the people of the city. We're not to be counted with them. Thirdly, Now, the writer of Hebrews talks about your call to separation. Look at verse 13. Your call to separation. Now, the writer of Hebrews, being lofty in theology, absolutely lofty, is immensely practical. Don't ever believe someone who says, well, I don't think theology is not practical. Hogwash. Theology is immensely practical. It affects every way, every facet of how you should live. He gets straight to the point of how you should live. Look at verse 13. So, some of your uh, Bibles say, hence, I I think I'm going to start using the word hence. Hence, so, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing 
his reproach, his amazing application, the writer of Hebrews says, just as the high priest separated themselves from the sin, just as Christ separated himself from the city, so you too separate yourself from this worldly system of sin. So, if you see the illustrations of the high priest separating themselves from the world, and Christ himself separating himself from the world, so you too, as a Christ follower, as a believer, as a Christian, you must be willing to leave the world's values, the world's systems, the world views, the moralities, and their philosophies. Or if you're in high school, it really is this, the peer pressures. Of this life. Of what your friends value. Of what your co-workers value. He says, hence, so let us go out to him outside the camp. We're there for camp is really barracks. Go outside the barracks. And in, in, and in their mind, as they're thinking outside of the camp, the language is purposely used so that the reader would immediately think of Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. If you recall, Israel rebelled by worshiping a golden calf in the wilderness. They were in sin, and you could say that was worldly. And Moses pitched his tent away from the people. He pitched it, the text says, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about, and here it is, that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And that's all that these metaphors are used for. In verse 9 of Exodus 33, it says, As Moses went inside his tent, a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So if you wanted to meet with God at that time, you would have to go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, because Israel's camp was, really was pursuing idols in other worldly systems. But then he says here, notice in the verse, as we are still in Hebrews chapter 13, Uh, verse 12, therefore, verse 13, so then let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach, presently caring, experiencing. The word reproach means to the insult, to be insulted for being a Christian. And you have to, you have to sit and pause and really measure your own heart, brothers and sisters. If it is true, and here's his argument, what Hebrews says. If it is true that Christ did this for us, if it is true that he modeled it for us, and if it is true that his blood was efficacious for our salvation, then you, sitting here, should be willing to bear the reproach of being a Christian. And this is saying that you should not be a private Christian. Uh, only. Let me say that. A private Christian only. You should be a private Christian. But you need to be a public Christian as well. This is where I stand. Now here's your question. If you're not willing to bear that reproach, you've got to ask yourself why. Why am I not? How could I not? How could I not? If he did it for me with his own blood. That's the argument of what Hebrews is saying. So now, notice uh, this word reproach, it's, it's amazing. If you recall in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, you remember when we were talking about all of the saints who have gone before us, the same word is used. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. It's not far. So let's go there. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 26. He says, this is about Moses, remember? Verse 26, he says, Considering 
The reproach of Christ, it's amazing. This is Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ. Huh. How, what do I read into this? Well, how do I see this? I see this as Moses knew who he was representing. And he knew it because he saw it in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush that would not be extinguished. That was the great I am. So he considered that the treasures of Christ, the great I am, Christ himself, used that language about himself in the book of John several times. He says here, I consider Christ greater than the treasures of all of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. I would rather be insulted. I would rather be offended. I would rather be persecuted for Christ than to have all the comfort and all the money and all the pleasures of Egypt. That's where our hearts should be because of this Christ. I don't care if it's going to be hard for me so long as I glorify Christ. I don't care if they're going to look at me this way so long as I glorify Christ. I don't care what they're going to say about me. I don't care if I get passed up of my promotion so long as Christ is glorified. Now, the Bible has much to say about separation. And what it is not, let me tell you what it's not, okay? Separation is not never having contact with the world. Okay, that's not what separation is. Sometimes folks believe that. We had a whole time in the dark ages of monasticism of people thinking they could remove themselves from sin indefinitely yet (coughs) through thick walls of a mission but when they were in their own rooms they would discover that the sin has come with them for they brought their own hearts if we were to not have contact with the world and we were to all buy RVs and live in some mountains in Montana together right? As a church, doesn't sound half bad, right? But if we were to do that, you know what? There would be no hospitality, would there? There'd be no evangelism. Evangelism would die. The mission of the church would die. Correct? That's right. Monasticism doesn't work in the sanctification of people. It's not um, separate, being separate from others is not this holier than thou attitude that says I'm better than you, I'm holier than you. I'm a Christian. A Christian. This is a Christian family. No, that's not what it, that's not what it means. And speaking in, of church dis- discipline, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10, you could write this down. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. So what Paul says is, when I say separate yourselves, I'm not saying physically separate yourselves completely and never talk to any person who doesn't know Christ because if you were supposed to do that, you'd have to leave the whole planet. And our Christ didn't do that. He was known to eat with sinners, correct? So then what does it mean? What it is, is separation is a departure from the attitude, the world system, and its values, and its mores, and its morals, and its philosophies, and it's a clinging unto the attitude, the values, the morals, and the doctrine of Christ. That's what it means. There is a specific, discerning, intentional break with the world in your mind and in your heart. Separation from the world begins at the heart level. It begins at salvation. In 1 John, go with me to 1 John. You have to look at 1 John. Look at 1 John, what it says about separation. 
in 1 John chapter 2, he says it begins at the heart. 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17, he says at the very heart level, at the very mind level, he says, verse 15, do not love the world. He's, this is the command. So if you're enamored with the world and you're enamored with some hobby or some sport or some, you're enamored with some, what you're doing, your job or even your family, brothers and sisters. If your family comes before God, it is worldly. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. And then he gives a diagnostic for people's hearts. If anyone loves the world, that is sacrifices for the world gives everything for the world. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. What he is saying is this, as you come to Christ and exercise faith in grabbing hold of Christ, there is a necessary turning away, separating repentance from the world and from sin unto Christ. We get lured, we get tempted, and we dip into sin, but there is a fundamental break in our lives. And we know that even as we go and we start to sin, we know what happens. The conviction of the Spirit comes. With the text floods through our minds. And we know we are not right with God. And we have to get right with Him. That is the supernatural love of the Father that God has put in your heart. That says, I can't do this anymore. We were sharing that. Manny, it's been years. It's been decades, Manny. And he still remembers that. He goes, it's still painful. I remember that. I had to say bye to my friends who didn't want Christ. We remember. Separation from the world is a practical level in 2 Corinthians 6. It says, do not be bound with unbelievers. This is a, this is a, a, a binding in relationships. This is dating. This is courting. This is getting married. This is, this is spent, I would even uh, apply this to business, tra- business partnerships where you have someone that is an unbeliever that does not share the same values. He says, what harmony has Christ with Belial or what is the believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Jesus says, in some manner, you are to separate from the world, yet still be in it and evangelize at the same time. John chapter 17, and I want you to see in his high priestly prayer, this is how Jesus describes it in John chapter 17. In John 17, and verses 15 to 19, notice he says this, I do not ask you, Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Wow. (laughs) I wish he did. Do you ever sit and watch the news and say, I wish he did? And Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. 
So what is his prayer? Not that you be removed out of this world, removed out of this sinful place that we're at, but that you'd be preserved in it. That you would be strong in it. That you would be a witness in it, even as the Satan, even as Satan assails. He says, they are not of the world. Amen. It speaks of origin. It speaks of orientation. This is not our world, brothers and sisters. They are not of the world. What's it say? They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he says, this is how, brothers and sisters, this is how we are to combat. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is through scriptures, brothers and sisters. We are to be preserved. We are to take offense. We are to go forward with the word of God. Amen? Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, notice he's comparing. Just as the Father sent Christ into the world, he says, I have also sent them into the world for their sakes. I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. Brothers and sisters, as God gave Christ the mission of saving sinners, he gives this mission to you to be a light, to be uh, a shining example to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. So if you're wondering why is it so hard and if you're wondering why I, I wish we just weren't here. I want some spiritual greener grass. I don't like it. Oh brothers and sisters. He says I prayed that you wouldn't be removed. For his glory. They have my word. They have the spirit. They can do this by the grace of God. You can be a witness on your campus and in your sports clubs and in your work. You can be a witness. Amen. And be separate at the same time. Yeah? Amen. What is, what is it going to cost? Yeah, I'll, I'll show you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is going to tell you what it's going to cost. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 10 to 12 says here. This is Paul. He's telling Timothy. This is his last letter. He says, now you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance. This is what it's going to cost. Persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Here it is, brothers and sisters. Here is one of God's promises, he says. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're going to live a life, and, and, and it's, this is just one aspect, brothers and sisters. I'm not going to say all of life is going to be difficult and hard, and I'm going to make it to, to heaven with a grumpy face, everything sad, you know. We have joy, don't we? We have each other. We have Christ. But the Bible tells you in no unclear terms. He warns you. Those who desire to live godly. And you should. He's not telling you not to. He's just saying if you really want to live for Christ. You will be persecuted. Why? Because if you live it in secret. You won't. People don't mind if you say you're a Christian. But you don't really live it blatantly. Live it out in the open. They don't really mind. But what the Bible says is there's no such thing as that kind of a Christian. If you want to live godly, you will be persecuted. Maybe not now. Maybe, maybe right now you have a great 
Bible study on campus or something, like what's happening in a coastal. But you will be persecuted. There's always this measure of, yes, God gives fruit, but there will be persecution. That is real. And Jesus said it. I pray that they will be removed, but that they would be in the world. Amen? Brother Manny shared this verse. Um, I don't want to leave you there, but you, in Philippians, you have to read it. We're going to a lot of texts. It's like Bible study. In Philippians chapter 3, I just want you to skip down to verse 10. He says, all of those things, they're all counted as rubbish. All of my worldly pursuits, all of that worldly system that I used to pursue. He says in verse 10, um, he says, all of that is nowhere near the comparison of knowing Christ. He says, verse 10, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And what, what Paul is saying is that I get to know who Christ is even more, his beauty, his glorious attributes, his love for me, and the power of his resurrection that, is, that it is shared to me that I know how this, I could live this life out by his power. And now notice, this is an amazing phrase that Paul says. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What Paul is saying is that as a Christian endures suffering, bears the reproach, okay, when you willingly do this for his glory, there is this special, this sweet fellowship that you share with the Savior and you know he is in the pit with you. He's in the fire with you as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's in Daniel's pit with you when you go through it because you're standing up for Christ. He was with Stephen as he was being stoned. Remember Stephen, I see the Son of Man. I see him standing, remember? And he promises it with you with the hardship of discipleship and the hardship of reaching out as a church. He says, lo, what? I am what? With you even to the end of the age. There is no sweet fellowship with Christ like that when we suffer for him. That is the truth. And you can talk to Christians, uh, older Christians, more mature Christians. You, they will tell you, he was with me. He was with me. I was talking to my friend Vicky, who lost her husband to COVID. And she, she kept saying, he's with me. Christ is with me. He's strengthening me. And I believed her. Because I know what that is. When Christ is with you in the pit. As you stand for him. Amen. So here's the question is, are you excited to speak about everything else, but not your walk with Christ? There's a problem. You're not willing to be, take on the reproach. Are you captivated with everything else but not Christ? Are you cowering because you don't want to be known as a Christ follower? Christ bearing the reproach for you lifts you up to bear it for him. The Peter who is afraid to be associated with Christ, now empowered by him, is arrested for Christ and finally dies for Christ. So four lessons on separation is Israel's example, Christ's motivation, your call, and lastly, your promise. God gives you a promise. This is as sweet as honey and butter on a roll, brothers and sisters. Let me tell you. Go back to Hebrews, he says, in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 
Verse 13, so let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. He tells us, if that's true of Christ and that was true of Israel, so should you. And then he says in verse 14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Over and above, Christ blesses his people with a lasting city where he reigns uncontested. The reason this verse is here is to tell you that the city that rejects you is nowhere near the comparison of the city that embraces you. Notice he says... For here we do not have a lasting city. Christians know this. Christians know this. Maybe you've not been convinced of this. Let me tell you. Here we do not have a lasting city. If you keep trying to find heaven on earth, you're not going to find it as a Christian. Everything is passing away. Do you understand? The things you think are going to stay are changing. The folks you think are always going to be there, you're going to have to say goodbye to. Hasn't this last two years told us this? We thought America was just going to keep going on. It has been all the time. And it's completely different now. A divided country now. People fighting over everything. We don't have a lasting city here. Are you putting all your stock and all of your faith and all of your trust in these cities and how you live your life here? Let me tell you, you don't have a lasting city. It's going away. As my pastor used to say, it's all going to burn, right? It is. But we are seeking the city which is to come. That's reminiscent of the language of Hebrews 11.9. Remember, when Abraham, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I don't think we think as Christians, I don't think we think as eschatological as we ought to be. Now you're going to say, what is that, right? Eschatology is the study of last things. We need to think more eschatology. Eschatological. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling you to think that way. Because when you think that way, then the things of this earth and the sufferings and the persecution and the reproach that you bear are very little in comparison to the perspective of eternity and the city where you're going. You do not belong here. Are you only making plans for this life? Are you only serving the things of this life? And you're only taking care of the things of this life. You ought to take care of these things. You ought to be faithful stewards. But if this is the only place where you're preparing and teaching your kids to prepare only for this life. I know how to do this. I know how to go to college. I know how to get a job. I know how to uh, sign up for my 401k. I know to have a retirement. But you don't have them ready for the city whose builder and architect is God. You have failed. You don't belong here if you're a Christian. In your heart, you have to leave the city of the world. You do not belong here. Christian, your heart was made for more joys than can, that can only be filled with Christ. You think this is joyful in this life? Your heart has been made and expanded and regenerated for more joys in heaven that can ever be explained. You have the heavenly passport of Christ of which you can go in. 
You've been reviled. You've been kicked out. You've been mocked no matter. You are the sons and daughters of the king coming home. You are citizens of an eternal city whose builder and architect is God himself. Where Christ reigns and true love dwells. Where sin is no longer present to mar and destroy relationships and ruin lives and dishonor God. You are citizens of a celestial city where the other separated ones, the other saints of old, await your coming to join them in the heavenly worship service that never ends. You feel like you don't belong here? This is good because you must certainly belong there where there will be those to welcome you in heavenly places. Not only can you enter, but your Savior reserved and prepared an eternal dwelling place for you. You are hurt from bearing the reproach here? No matter, never will you be insulted for doing what is right and holy, for that is all there is in heaven. No longer will you be mocked for singing to your Savior, for that is heaven's holy occupation. No longer will you be called a fool, for worship to Christ will be finally understood to be the only right and true response. No longer will you be called a dreamer of fanciful tales, for they will no longer be promises, but stark reality which you see with your own eyes. Christian, separate yourselves unto Christ and away from the world, and let your utmost devotion and love be His. Let's pray. Father, oh, we long for that celestial city where you reign uncontested forever and ever. That's where we long to be. Lord, we have, if we have not separated ourselves and our hearts and our minds as we ought, we pray you would help us with that. We desire to glorify you. Help us to be that peculiar, that special people. Help us to sing. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.